Let's turn our Bibles this morning to the book of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And we are going to read the first two verses. In fact, we'll be looking at verses 1 and a portion of verse 2. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. I want to look at those two verses this morning, at least a verse and a half. But we have been considering the subject of justification. How does God put guilty sinners right with himself? How do guilty, wretched sinner come to obtain the righteousness of God? Having established in chapter 1, verses 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, the need for sinful men and women to be justified, that is, reckoned righteous by God. And in chapter 3, verse 21 to chapter 4, verse 25, the method and manner in which they are justified. Paul, in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, discusses the blessings that accrue to those whom God has justified or declared righteous. Our text opens with these words, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek verb that translates the words have been justified literally reads having been justified, suggesting the decisiveness, the finality with which God declares sinners righteous, The point is, as one writer states, God does not justify us or pardon our innumerable offenses by degrees, but at once. Paul is saying here, therefore, having been, perfect tense, suggesting that the act has been done with abiding continual results, having been justified by faith and continue to be in a position, in a state of justification before God, we have peace with God. And my friends, the wonderful truth is that God does not justify us on a provisional, probationary basis. It's not as though God declares us righteous and then say, well, okay, you behave yourself and I will see to your getting through into heaven. No, no, no. The moment he declares us righteous, it's a done deal. We have been justified. The word of God says we have been acquitted of our sins. At once we stand before him just as if we had never sinned. The songwriter John W. Peterson puts it so well when he wrote these words, Born of the Spirit with life from above, into God's family divine, justified fully by Calvary's love. Oh, what a standing is mine. And the transaction so quickly was made, when as a sinner I came, took of the offer of grace he did proffer, he saved me, oh praise his dear name. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul calls attention to the glories, what we might term the blessed effects of justification. We'll consider just two this morning. The first of these is peace with God. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This undoubtedly is one of the greatest privileges, one of the most coveted blessings one can ever have. Unless this should seem 
sheer exaggeration, lest it should be regarded as sheer exaggeration, we must remember what the Word of God teaches regarding sinful humanity. The Word of God teaches that until they are brought to faith in Christ by the grace of God, men and women outside of Christ are under the wrath of God. John 3 verse 36 puts it precisely as follows, whosoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In fact, earlier in chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul had declared the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is no joke. This is no fanciful tale. The word of God teaches that there is a real wrath resting upon the unconverted, not when they die, but even right now. In fact, here's how the psalmist puts it in very sobering terms. Psalm 7, verses 11 through 13, he says this, God is a righteous judge. And a God who feels indignation every day, if a man does not repent, God will whet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. And my friends, one might be having a good time, one might be in good health, one might even be prospering materially in life. But here's the word of what the Word of God suggests. The Word of God teaches that outside of Christ, every single person born in this world without Christ is under the wrath of God. Indeed, every person who is not born again, who has never believed on Christ, confessing him as Savior, is presently under the wrath of God. That's what the Bible teaches. And it matters not how religious one might be. It matters not how morally upright one might be, how kind-hearted one might be toward others before God. They are in a state of condemnation facing the fearful prospect of eternal judgment, which means That if they should die without coming to Christ, if they should die without peace with God, then they'll enter a Christless eternity, away from the presence of God, facing the everlasting wrath of God. My friends, if that's not scary, nothing else is. Praise God, the glorious message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that those who by faith have been justified, declared righteous by God, they, here comes, they have peace with God. In the Greek, the verb have is present continuous tense. It is in the indicative mood, which means that a fact is being asserted. And the fact that is being asserted is the certainty and constancy of our having peace with God. Paul is saying here literally, having been justified by faith, we remain in that justified condition and we are continually having peace. The point then is not that we may have peace or we are going to have peace, but we do have peace with God. A peace that's present, a peace that's ongoing, a peace that is permanent. Now, what is this peace with God? 
What does Paul mean when he says that having been justified, having been declared righteous by God, we are having peace with God? What is this peace with God? And to begin with, let me say here that peace with God, as mentioned here in our text, is not referring to that inner subjective sense of calm in our hearts. It has nothing to do with how we feel. It's not an emotional experience. It is not something we feel. Peace with God is not something that's palpable. Peace with God that's mentioned here in our text is to be differentiated from the peace of God of which Philippians chapter 4 verse 7 says. Remember what Paul says there? He says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You ask then, what is the difference between peace with God that's mentioned here in our text and the peace of God? And the difference between the two is that whereas the peace of God relates to the sense of calm that God, by his spirit, instills in our hearts, peace with God concerns the status of our relationship with God. The peace of God has to do with the sense of calm that God, by Spirit, instills in our hearts, whereas peace with God is an objective reality. It is outside of our subjective experience, and peace with God concerns the status of our relationship with God. Having to do less with how one feels, peace with God has more to do with what God has done. And what has God done? The Word of God teaches that he has reconciled us to himself. Those of us who have trusted Christ as Savior, he has reconciled us to himself, putting an end to his wrath against us, no longer regarding us as his enemies. That's something that takes place irrespective of how we feel. Peace with God means that on the basis of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sinner's faith in him, God has removed the walls of hostility between himself and the sinner. And let me say this, there is a real hostility. You see, listen very carefully. There is, this is not rhetorical, figurative language. There's a real hostility between God and the person who is not saved. The reason why many do not appreciate that is really because, one of the reasons at least is because of a low view of sin. The Bible teaches that God is so holy. Yes, God is love, but he is so holy. He cannot look upon sin. And he must judge, he must punish sin. And that is why when he looks at the person in sin, unconverted, away from God, rebelling against him, the Bible teaches that his wrath is constantly being revealed from heaven against such. If we, want to know, if we want to understand something of the hostility that God has towards sin, we only have to look at the cross of the Lord Jesus because that explains why when on the cross, as he hung there on the cross, he cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason God forsook him, the psalmist gives a response in the next verse. He says, but you are Holy. You are holy. Peace with God then means that on the basis of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sinner's faith in him, God has removed 
the walls of hostility between himself and the city. Peace with God is all about God bringing the guilty sinner in a pardoned state. God saying to the guilty sinner, you're not guilty. And why? Because of what Christ has done on your behalf and because of your faith and your trust in him. It is peace with God, which is all about God bringing the guilty, pardoned sinner into favor and friendship and fellowship with himself. Let's see how this is illustrated in scripture. Indeed, this was true of Abraham. This was true of Abraham. We mustn't think that Abraham was always a righteous man. In fact, when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, he was an idol worshiper. You can read that back in the book of Genesis. His father Nahor worshipped these gods in Mesopotamia. But listen to what the word of God says in James chapter 2 verse 23. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Here's what follows. And he was called what? Friend of God. You see what happens? When did the friendship begin? The friendship began when he was declared righteous. How was he declared righteous? He did not work his way to God. He did not engage in a whole lot of good deeds trying to please God. He simply believed God. He came to God by faith, believing the word of God. It was counted to him as righteousness. God said, aha, that's my friend. So independent then of any subjective feeling on our part, God, we are saying, justifies us through faith in Christ. And in so doing, what does he do? He declares peace. And so we enter into this relationship of peace with God, not by working ever so hard to placate God, nor by striving to pacify our conscience. But we enter into this relationship of peace with God by the very faith and account of which we were justified by God. It's faith. Faith. By simply believing, trusting, resting, relying on the finished work of Christ, on the person of Christ, on the merits of his sacrificial work on the cross, we appropriate the reality of peace with God, whether or not we feel it. It's an objective reality. And it's very important we get a hold of this truth because there are many who base the assurance of their salvation on some good feeling they have on how good they feel in relation to God. But let me say this, my friends, the sobering truth is that one may feel that one is at peace with God when in fact one is not. That's why a lot of people are going to go to hell with good feelings, good, high, religious, elated feelings. For instance, in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14, the prophet Jeremiah spoke of those who had been duped into a sense of peace when there was, in fact, no peace. Let me say this, my friends. You see, our hearts, with all their feelings, can deceive us. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things who can know it. That is why the word of God warns in Proverbs 28, verse 26, whoever trusts in his heart is a fool. And by extension, we could say whoever trusts in his feelings is a fool. Why? Because feelings are ephemeral. Feelings are temporary. Feelings are passing. Feelings are dependent on circumstances. But here's the truth. The objective reality of God's peace, peace with God, when we come to God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, believing on Christ, that is an objective reality irrespective of how we may feel. The fact is, you and I are never commanded in Scripture to make peace with God. You'll hear people say, have you made your peace with God? That's not taught in the Word of God. 
We're never commanded in scripture to make peace with God or to work toward a feeling of peace with God. Because why? In scripture, God is always, invariably, God is presented as the initiator of peace with sinners. Let's illustrate this. Go back to the Garden of Eden. You remember when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, they disobeyed God. What were, did they go running to God to be reconciled? No, they were hiding. God was the one who came. God was the one who took the initiative, who came asking for them. He says, Adam, where are you? Where, Adam, where are you? Where are you, Adam? Adam was in hiding. That's the condition of the, the sinner's heart before God. The heart of the sinner before God, barring the grace of God, is of such that were it possible, the sinner would get rid of God. You say, come on, that doesn't apply to me. Oh, yes, it does. Because what the Bible says goes true for every single human being. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there's no one who is good, no, not one. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. Somebody says, you know, well, let me, let me say this. Any inkling, you see, somebody says, well, I know people who are not saved, who desire God and they seek God. Let me say this. There's an explanation for that. And the explanation is this, that whenever the heart is being moved in the direction of God. It's never our initiative. It is God by his spirit who is pleading, who is wooing, because Jesus says in John's gospel, he says, no man can come to me except the Father draws him. We're never asked to base our assurance of salvation on how good we feel, on how much we're at peace in our hearts. You ask some people, you say, are you saved? They said, yes, I'm saved. How do you know? I really feel it. No, 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 no. Mm -mm. The point is this. Feelings can be very deceptive. Feelings come and feelings go. We're encouraged, beloved, to base our assurance of salvation on the certain truth that God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, has established peace. The Word of God teaches in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 17, that whereas we were once separated from Christ, he, that is the Lord Jesus, came and preached peace to us. We read in Ephesians 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Hence it is that our text tells us we have peace, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as one writer accurately puts it, she says this quote, Peace with God is not an effort on our part to make ourselves right in God's sight. Peace is the effect of Christ's work on the cross in our place. It is not a reward in future glory, nor is it a reward on this earth for deeds well done. It is a gift that comes with salvation through no effort of our own. Do you want to know the peace, peace with God this morning? Here's how you come into peace with God, my friends. You have to know yourself as a sinner, a real sinner before God, not just a good sinner. There's no good sinner. You must come humbly at the foot of the cross. You must look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect one, the righteous one. You must confess your unworthiness. You must confess your sinfulness, and you must confess your faith in his finished work. And here's what the Bible tells us. 
the moment that that is done, we have been justified. And what's the state of affairs? We are having peace. We're having a party. You're having peace. What then is the implication of this truth that we have peace with God consequent upon our justification? And the truth is this, beloved, that because God is the one who initiated, because God was the one who initiated this peace, listen carefully, because God was the one who initiated this peace, who established this peace, those of us who have trusted in Christ for our salvation, here it comes, need not be plagued by a sense of guilt, by a sense of condemnation, with a sense of dread with respect to future judgment. God in grace has erased our slate. He has wiped our slate clean. He has said not guilty. And on top of that, he says we are reconciled. We are at peace. It reminds us of what the prophet Isaiah says uh, concerning the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus. As he says he shall see of the travail of his soul. Who is he referring to? I suggest it's God the Father. God the Father shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be what? Satisfied. The question is, are you? We're not to be working for peace with God. We are not to be working for some kind of feeling. We ought to be seeing to it, first of all, that we have truly trusted in Christ, that we are resting in him. Because here's the truth, the glorious truth. If that has been done, then we are having peace with God. So resulting from our being justified by faith, we have then, first of all, the blessing of peace with God. Now, secondly, a second glorious blessing we have in consequence of our being justified by faith is admission to the grace of God. Admission to the grace of God. Look at verse 2. Through him, that is through Christ, we have also, so something else is coming, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now foundational to any discussion on this access we have to this grace spoken of in verse 2, this grace of God would be the matter of our access to God to begin with. In the Old Testament, the idea of accessing the presence of God was regarded with great dread, with great terror. In fact, you'll recall at the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, the word of God tells us that when the children of Israel saw the manifest presence of God, when he appeared to them as a consuming fire on Mount Sinai, they were what? terrified. The Bible records in Exodus 20 verses 18 through 21, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood, here it comes, they stood afar off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Verse 21, the people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The presence of God was most terrifying. Before the atoning death of our Lord Jesus Christ and the revelation of the gospel, the people of the Old Testament, they could not approach God on their own. They were in need, constant need, of a Levitical high priest who would offer sacrifices, who would go into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies on their behalf. But here's a catch. If that high priest, privileged as he was to enter God's presence, 
went beyond the restricted time of once per year, then what would have happened would, would be this. He would be struck dead. He would be struck dead. He would be killed. But praise God, with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, the consummate sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who was slain for the sin of the world, the dread and terror of approaching God is no longer a reality. It's no longer a reality. For on account of his sacrificial death and their faith and trust in him, sinners justified by the grace of God, the free grace of God, can now come directly, live and direct, into his holy and awesome presence. They need not approach him with cringing, cowardly dread. Rather, as children approach a loving father, knowing that they are always welcome, knowing that they can always come with confidence, so it is that those who have trusted Christ, those whom God has declared righteous, can come with confidence and full assurance of faith, drawing near to God, Hebrews 10 and verse 22. The hymn writer Charles Wesley celebrated this blessed reality when he wrote these words, the great hymn of the Christian church. Here's what he says, My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father Abba cry. This brings us into a consideration of the grace of God to which we have obtained access. So we talk about, first of all, our coming to God. Well, specifically the text speaks of our having access, our coming into this grace in which we stand. Grace, as you know, is one of the richest content-packed words in scripture. With the letter of the word, someone has defined grace as God's resources available at Christ's expense, or God's resources available to Christians everywhere. Now, let me say this, that this pretty much captures the essence of what grace is in scripture, because inherent in the word grace is the idea of Unmerited, unearned favor, undeserved favor in scripture. Grace, of course, is also referred to as God's enabling power. And the interesting thing is this, that whenever the word grace, oftentimes the word grace in reference to God is mentioned in scripture, in the word of God, invariably it is expressed in superlative terms, underscoring its illimitable extent. What do I mean by that? Well, consider such passages as these. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6. His glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. His glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Ephesians 1 verse 7 makes reference to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. Ephesians 2 verse 7 speaks of the immeasurable Grace, riches of his grace. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8 characterizes this grace as the unsearchable riches of Christ. Second Corinthians 9 verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's what we mean by grace being expressed in superlative terms. 
And here in Romans chapter 5, Paul calls attention to what he describes in verse 17 as the abounding grace, abounding grace. And so what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 5 verse 1 is that as a result of God's saving grace in putting sinners right with himself by virtue of his acquitting guilty sinners of their sins, the penalty of sin, they have obtained access. They have gained clearance of entry, so to speak, into the vast illimitable realm of God's grace, of God's favor, of God's blessing. As a result of their new relationship with God, they have admission, they have access, they have clearance to enter into the privileges, all the privileges of his favor, his rich, unending resources of power. That's what is encapsulated. That's what is inherent in the idea of this grace in which we stand. It is the unmerited favor of God. It is all the various blessings of God in lavish proportions, in abundance. Now let's look at how justified forgiven sinners are said to come into this rich treasure trove of grace of God. First of all, note verse 2. They come into the riches of God's grace. Here it comes through him, through him. We have access, we have obtained, Paul says, access into this grace through him. Who is the him referring to? It is referring to none other but the Lord Jesus Christ, mentioned at the end of the preceding verse. Here's the point. Just as our peace with God is through him, through Christ, so our access to God is through Christ. Ephesians 2.13 tells us, In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, are now made near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2.18 says this, For through him we both, that is Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to God the Father. Ephesians 3.12 puts it like this, In whom Christ Jesus our Lord, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Indeed, we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also once suffered for sins that just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And surely what all of this says to us is this, that access to God is to be found in none other but Christ. No, not through the Virgin Mary, as some put it, not through Mary, Not through the departed saints, but through Christ, Christ and Christ alone. For there is salvation in none other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 tells us. And we don't have access to God through some humanly designated priest. Rather, we enter the presence of God through Christ and Christ alone. Second, justified forgiven sinners come into the riches of God's grace having obtained it. That's what the text says. We have obtained it. Look again at verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. Now, spare me and allow me a little. Don't get tired of this. And there's a reason I'm doing this. You see the word obtained, the verb obtained, again, it is in the perfect tense. And what Paul is saying is this, that having obtained this access, We continue to have it. It is an abiding reality. It is a continually abiding reality. We continue to have access 
to this grace. We are continuing to have access suggested here then is the permanence of our access, the fact that our access to God does not have an expiration date. Some of us work at places where, you know, from time to time you have your past, it has to be what? Renewed. There is no need to renew this past. Once we get this past, it's for life. We have obtained it, and we are continuing to hold this past, this free passage into the grace of God. Now, perhaps the most delightful truth, verse 2 asserts, with regard to the grace that we have obtained, is this, that we stand in it. Do you see that? We have obtained access into this grace in which we stand. Like the verb obtain, this verb is also, in, is also a perfect active indicative, which again speaks of a once accomplished yet ongoing reality. We come into this grace, we are given access, we are given passage into this grace of God, the rich treasure trove of God's abundant grace. We have obtained access and we are standing in it. The word stand conveys the image of being rooted and grounded. And it expands on the idea of the permanence with which the believer relates to God's grace. The overall point of verse 2 then is this, that not only have we obtained and are continuing to have access to God's grace, but we have a solid, secure, and ongoing footing in this grace. That's why we can't fall away from grace. That's why we can't lose our salvation. Paul says we have obtained it, we continue to hold it, and we are standing in it and are continuing to stand and will continue to stand in it. As one commentator writes, we not only get into relationship with God by grace, but we also live out this relationship in day-to-day life by grace. That's how we stand in it. Well, what are the specifics? And we're winding down this morning to a close. What are the specifics of our access to God? What constitutes our access to God? In fact, what precisely does Paul mean by the expression, this grace in which we stand? And based on the immediate context, he perhaps, we could say, based on the immediate context, he has in view justification by faith. Because remember, look at the flow of the text. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access into this grace. This, the antecedent, would be what? Justification by faith. Indeed, back in chapter 3, verse 24, Paul had linked, you remember, the grace of God to our justification. When he declared this, he says, justified, we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But some commentators take this expression, this grace, to mean more than just the grace of justification. Some commentators take it to mean the broad realm of God's grace. And I think that there's merit in that. And I'll show you why there's broad merit. This is a viable interpretation. Yes, Romans chapter 1, verse 5, 15, verse 5. Or before we get there, in addition to God's justifying grace with which our text is concerned, Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Romans 15, verse 5, 15, verse 15, rather, refer to the grace God gives for service. So you see, we have saving grace. We have serving grace. There's a grace of his blessing in chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul, as he greets the Christians at home, he says, grace to you. What is he doing? He's saying, God's blessing be on you. But then there's the grace, Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, the grace that he distributes for service in the form of gifts, spiritual gifts. So grace is a multifaceted, full-orbed word. And so when Paul says, 
we are standing in this grace to which we have obtained access. We are standing in this grace. It is not just the saving grace of God, but the sanctifying grace of God. That grace whereby we are transformed. By the time we get to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is not only saving grace, sanctifying grace, but it is also serving grace. Everything that we need to live the Christian life, everything that pertains to life and godliness, as the Apostle Peter puts it in 2 Peter chapter 1, comes with the grace of God. Well, let me mention in closing one specific blessing that comes with access to this grace in which we stand. And it is this. It is the access. It is access to the grace of adoption. Access to the grace of adoption. Here we refer to our becoming members of God's family, of our becoming sons and daughters of God. My friends, the Bible teaches that when God declares guilty sinners righteous, in addition to absolving them of their sins, in addition to declaring them righteous, in addition to forgiving them of their sins, he adopts them into their family, into his family, which means this, that formerly they were not a part of his family. You say, what do you mean? John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, he came to his own, but his own received, not, received him not. That's John 1, 11. John 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. When God declares sinners righteous, what he then does is give them the right to become his children. That means formerly they were not. Instead, they were children of the devil. John chapter 8, verse 44, Ephesians 2, verse 2. And were by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2, verse 3. And with their admission into the family of God, what then happens is this. God sends forth his spirit into their hearts, whereby they cry, Abba, Father. The spirit is bearing witness with their spirit that they are the children of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 17, and if heirs, if children, then heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, joint heirs with God. That's a blessing to which we come, which we access in this grace in which we stand. And praise God, we never lose the standing. Here's a question as we close this morning. To begin with, have you come to that initial step where before God, you know yourself to be a sinner? even though religious, even though morally upright, and you say, Lord, I believe your word. I take it at face value. I'm not as good as I think I am. I'm a guilty, wretched sinner before you. I'm lost. I need to be saved. Lord, save me. I believe that Christ died, that his death was sufficient payment for my sins. You really believe that, and you open your heart, your life to him. That's how you enter into this blessed reality of peace with God. And don't get me wrong, to, to become saved doesn't mean one prays an elaborate prayer. Because here's the point, the essence of salvation is this. It is looking to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and trust, depending on him. Even if one cannot articulate the words as well as one would like, here's the point, the important thing is to know yourself to be a sinner, that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. You place your faith and trust in him, the Bible says you will be saved. You'll be saved, you'll come into peace with God, you'll come into his family. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have obtained access into this grace in which we stand. May this be true in your life, for Christ's sake.
Amen.